right, welcome back to the conversation. I'm Ryan Grimm, a TYT contributor here and also a bureau chief at The Intercept. Uh, really excited to be joined today by uh, Hassan El Tayab, who is a uh, legislative director over at the a kind of Quaker Peace Organization. Be a good, good way of describing FCNL. Is that is that right, Hassan? Uh, yeah, that's right. The one of the oldest uh, peace lobbies in the country, right here in Capitol Hill. And also also joined um, from Sanaa, Yemen, by Shaib Al uh, Al Mosawa, uh, who is joining us by audio. Uh, Shaib, thank you so much for. For being here. Thanks for having me. And Shaib just wrote a terrific piece in the Intercept, which I would recommend everybody go check out after they after they watch this. Um, but so Shaib, can you t tell us a little bit about the uh, about where we where we are now? As and also as people in Yemen are watching the world's focus on Russia and Ukraine, have have are you know are, are people wondering you know why it is that there's so much attention there and so little attention in Yemen or is this just something that is understood to be the case at this point they have acknowledged that uh, ukraine is a totally different issue than than yemen because they think uh, ukraine is uh, their race maybe uh, have uh, have played a part in in uh, in catching the, the world attention into their suffering. While Yemen uh, has been ignored mainly because uh, it's uh, Saudi Arabia and the uh, US who are uh, leading the, the, the war. Uh, and that's why the world doesn't, doesn't care or give much attention to, to what's happening for, for the past eight years. And what are the, what are the day to day conditions there right now compared to well, in general, but then also compared to say a year ago. Yemen situation has never been has been worse all the time, but it, but it's much worse now. And and since Biden came, it's been a lot difficult for Yemenis to to cope with their daily lives. And yeah, there is no fuel. The fuel has has been the main or the main driver of uh, food uh, insecurity in uh, across Yemen. And that's because since Biden came, Saudi, I don't know, maybe felt emboldened to to tighten the, the blockade on on fuel imports. But it's it's been the case since uh, Biden came to office that fuel has been lower and lower and there is no fuel at all. Sometimes stations that get their fuel from the company, they're running out of fuel and there is almost five kilometers of cars lining up mm. at fuel stations. Hassan, what's the situation in Congress at this point? Last year, there was a battle, uh, an attempt to get into a piece of legislation of the NDAA, some, some type of Binding language that would that would really hamstring Saudi Arabia's war effort. Uh, that that felt that fell short. Uh, there had been a decision not to push forward with a war powers resolution and instead to try this alternative approach. So, you know, now that the groups are regrouping, so to speak, what's what what's the next move? Uh, Ryan, thank you so much for having me on. And I agree that Intercept article that Chueb. Uh, 
wrote is incredible and heartbreaking. We are approaching the seventh anniversary of the war on Saturday. And this is seven years of US enabled Saudi led coalition war and blockade that's pushed millions of people to the brink of famine, including millions of children. It's devastating. Uh, since Biden came into office, um, you know, we've seen an escalation of the Saudi war in Yemen, despite Biden promising that he would end all US participation. He couched it in the terms offensive, but we know that, you know, this ongoing support that's happening, um, you know, whether you call it offensive or defensive, is enabling these Saudi aircraft. In September, we saw Congress passed through the house actually a uh, NDAA provision to terminate intel sharing logistical support spare parts and maintenance unfortunately uh, for the you know uh, third time in three consecutive years that same uh, amendment was stripped out in conference negotiations between the house and senate uh, so you know obviously we have to keep going uh, reps Pramila Jayapal and Defazio in the house uh, they said in February in an op-ed they published in The Nation that they were going to introduce a new Yemen war powers resolution to end all this US complicity in the war, including uh, everything that was in the, uh, the amendment that passed through the House. Uh, and that got 219 votes. So they are planning to introduce that um, around the seventh anniversary of the war, which you know, in the I think we'll probably see it introduced in the next week or two, and uh, you know, receive floor consideration shortly after that. And so, Shuai, you know, back in uh, 2015 or so, when you know, when this war first started, I think people had a had a hope that it would this would this would be quick that that, that there were negotiations going on that. Uh, this would be used as leverage, and that there would be, you know, some type of a deal reached. And I don't think anybody expected at the time that seven years later, we'd still be, uh, we'd, you know, Yemen would still be facing this crisis, would still be at war. What are people thinking now on on the ground? Like, what, how, how, how much hope do people have that there's any any light at the end of this tunnel? To borrow a, a Vietnam phrase, that. That something, or that there there might be a a corner turned here, or are people just assuming that this is a new reality until told otherwise? People here have have lost hope that the war uh, is coming to an end uh, anytime soon, and that's uh, and they think uh, it's mainly because uh, the United States has refused or haven't uh, been willing to to put an end to this, whether they're correct or not. That's what the majority of the people here think. It's a phone call. They said that the U.S. can end it in a phone call to the Saudi monarchs. What does that assumption that the war is not going to end anytime soon? What does that do to to daily life? Like, do do is life still going on, uh, or are people just you know? I know that one reason that the world's not paying a lot of attention to Yemen is that the Refugee crisis is an internal one, rather than refugees pouring out into other countries. So how how do how do people go about their lives just without any hope that this is going to end? They have uh, somehow adapted to to the hardships uh, they have been through uh, for the past uh, seven years, and uh, uh, they're suffering. They're resorting to to harsh coping measures to come about their daily lives and, and uh, it's been a lot difficult. But they're uh, surviving, but not living actually. Mm-hmm. Hassan, what, what, what's your sense of what's holding 
the White House back from just making that phone call? And how much how much does it have to do with with gas prices? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Uh, there has been this US Saudi partnership that's been going on for decades and decades, and it is because of fuel. And this, you know, if anything, that this crisis in Ukraine, this crisis in Yemen shows that we desperately need to get off fossil fuels to be able to hold authoritarians accountable. Um, you know, US leadership in opposing. Uh, Russia, uh, you know, you know, looking at the war in Yemen, we're essentially supporting the Putin side of the war in Yemen, um, and supporting the Mohammed bin Salman, uh, uh, you know, and and now Biden is going hat in hand to Mohammed bin Salman to try to get him to stabilize world oil markets and to pump more fossil fuels. You just saw um, that, you know, the same roughly in, in within a few days time of the US announcing that it was going to send more Patriot missile batteries to Saudi Arabia, that Saudi had agreed to produce more fossil fuels. So, I mean, if this is not a quid pro quo, uh, you know, I don't know what is. And, and basically what, you know, uh, the uh, Saudis and the UAE made clear is that they wanted more military aid for their war in Yemen if they were going to keep the, the uh, fossil fuel taps open. And Shaib, you know, before this war broke out, you know, Yemen was obviously not doing well, you know, economically, but it had a, you know, it had a middle class, it had a working class, it had its it had it had its upper class. Uh, what what is left of of those kind of middle and upper class um, elements of the Yemeni society seven years into this war? Um, a lot have been. Uh damaged i mean uh, a lot has uh, of the middle, middle class have uh, have suffered a lot there is no salary for the past the the, the monthly salary for public servant have been uh, cut for the for the past 6 years now and that's the a saudi uh, war tactic it's it's been a lot worse for all society classes but mainly the working class has been the worst, the worst. Hassan Shaib, um, fortunately we have to leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us. Love to have you back again uh, soon. And and Hassan, best of luck with the legislation, Shaib. Uh, best, best to you in, in Sana'a. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Ryan. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm joined by my Intercept colleague, Akela Lacey. Akela, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you here. And so we're talking about a new story that you have up about Texas, how Texas voting restrictions on top of everything else we understand about voting restrictions also have led to a, a shortage of poll workers. And you, in, in your story, you write about this or you open it up with this, with this crazy sign that was circulating on, on, on social media. Where basically it's please do not use cell phones while voting, printed materials are allowed and then it says, it, it's kind of handwritten over it. Sorry, no Democrat voting. Parentheses not staffed. And it's like, oh, no Democrat voting. Okay, wow. So what what happened? Like, why was there no Democrat voting? Was this a one-off? And and what did you find was the was a a cause of this inability of people to vote? 
So yeah, this happened in Tarrant County, which had an extreme number of dropouts of election judges and election workers um, in the day, the days leading up to the primary on primary day. Um, other counties in Texas had similar problems, but the the number, like the extreme number of dropouts, was was unique to Tarrant in this situation. Uh, my understanding and and what we reported is that. Uh, a lot of people dropped out for various reasons, partially because of COVID, partially because um, you know of concerns that the mask mandate had ended at a lot of the at these sites. Um, a lot of poll workers are elderly or retired and and more susceptible to to you know contracting COVID. Um, but the Democratic Party chair in Tarrant County and the uh, the party chair in the neighboring county um, of Parker. Said you know that a lot of people were really concerned about the the new voting law that Greg Abbott signed into law late last year that introduces all sorts of criminal penalties um, for poll workers. Uh, you know, on one in particular on soliciting mail ballots, um, and so the idea is that this created a lot of confusion and fear for poll workers. Um, you know, whether or not that was that was founded or not, but people basically didn't want to risk, you know, all these possible criminal penalties on top of having a 14-hour shift, being paid, you know, minimum wage or a little bit more to do a pretty thankless job. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and yeah, one of the poll workers that we spoke to, this this city in particular sits on the border of these two counties in Texas. So it's common for people to vote on the wrong side or, or try or you know get sent to the other side. Uh, and one of the election judges um, on the other side, who they received voters who were turned away at this place in Tarrant where the, the sign was, um, he said that he has been doing this job for five years and still has a lot of fear over what the new law might mean, you know, and what he is and isn't allowed to do actually at the poll. Um, there were a couple of other videos that were circulating around this on this day of um, Republicans not being able to vote at other locations. And so there it was an issue where both parties mm. had a really hard time um, retaining and, and training election workers. Right, and, and the backdrop for some of this is there you know, I remember there being a, an incredibly egregious case where Greg Abbott went after, or the, the Texas Attorney General went after a woman who, you know, locked up a woman for voting. After the woman had asked, you know, she said, you know, she she followed all the rules. She said, you know, I'm, she was either on probation or parole. I don't remember precisely. Said, yeah. you know, am I allowed to vote? And she was told, yes, yes, you're, you are allowed to vote. She said, okay, I just wanted to make sure because I'm, you know, here's this, this is my situation. And at, then she voted. And they locked her up for like six years or something. And so, what is the, so what is the, this new law that says that it, that 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 has poll workers so concerned that if they give somebody information that is kind of interpreted to be soliciting that. Or some O'Keefe style type person comes in with hidden camera and <laughs> and selectively like you know figures out some way to make it look like they were doing like like what is it that they're afraid that they're going to get caught doing under this new law? Yeah, so SB one has this provision that basically puts a ban on quote solicitation of mail ballots, but it, in practice, effectively, if somebody you know 
has not specifically requested a mail ballot if an election worker helps them or guides them you know towards that option or lets them know that that's an option that could be considered solicitation um there's some concern about you know even asking questions or answering questions uh, when people are filling out this application or helping them fill out mm. the correct information could be uh, you know, if, if you end up going to court, it could be argued that, that that's a form of solicitation. Um, so these forms are always confusing. Yeah. So, and, or at least to me, I'm always asking people, where am I supposed to, what's a surname? I don't even know what a surname is. <laughs> but I mean, the, the other thing that this Reuters reported this and the Texas Tribune did a lot of good work on this too, is that uh, a, you know, unprecedented numbers of mail ballots have been rejected already this year in Texas. Um, so there was another part of the law that added um, a requirement that your mail ballot has to include the same number, whether it's your driver's license number or your social security number that you use to register to vote. Um, right. if, there, if there's a discrepancy there, then they can reject the ballot. That happened a lot of times. And so these two pieces sort of work together where there's an added level of uncertainty around what's actually required on the ballot. And then there's an added penalty for actually helping people figure out what they're supposed to include in order to have their vote counted. Um, this, the solicitation of mail ballots is punishable by up to two years in jail and $10,000 in fines. Um, it's a jail felony, um, which is like a lower level offense in Texas, but it's still you know, not worth it for a lot of people. Right, because you can't necessarily trust Texas Texas prosecutors to be sane about this, as because right. they've shown that that they're not. While I have you here, you know, a number of the members of the squad have primaries this cycle. I wanted to ask you about a couple of those, um, Cory Bush and Ilan Omar in particular. So first, tell us a little bit about Cory Bush and her her primary opponent, because my my understanding is that this is a very serious threat, um, and yet that the establishment is mounting a you know a major campaign against her. Right, so uh, Stephen Roberts is a state senator in Missouri. Um, he is the Democratic caucus whip. Um, he was the chair of the Black Caucus when he was a state representative. Um, he, you know, is the son of a former alderman and, and a local developer, um, pretty well known in the in the area. He has until I guess he has about six days um, to file. Uh, he has not filed yet, but there are murmurs, um, and you know it's been reported that he is considering the challenge. Um, a lot of so people in the district received calls that they thought came from you know people were working for for him, asking about him and Corey Bush. Um, so we'll know in a couple of days whether or not he gets into the race, but he would definitely be running to Bush's right. Um, you know there is. She's the first sort of uh, frontline activist who was elected to the House as you know in 2020 mm -hmm. as part of the squad, um, and so you know she has a lot of support in St. Louis. Um, I think it would be not out of the question, you know, for this to be a competitive race for her. But you know, there's I I think the idea that Stephen Roberts like you know is a total upset to her is probably. Not, not the case. But he's he's a he's a competitive okay. challenger. Um, and he, part of it, part of it depends, I guess, on the district too. And isn't Roberts, as a state senator, on the committee that is going to be drawing the district? Yeah. So he has been very vocal um, about his plans to try to alter the bounds of the first <laughs> district. That's so shady. 
Yeah, and and actually, the day that the the Senate deba- the state Senate debated uh, around a maps pro- like you know for seven hours or something, and ended up having to put it on pause the next day because everyone was so pissed off about it. And that day is when uh, all these you know mysterious edits were made to Roberts's Wikipedia page, um, removing all of these allegations of of sexual assault against him, which had been made by uh, one woman uh, who was a who was a colleague of his in the state house um, and another law student um, that was in 2015 and 2016. Um, so yeah, and he is, you know, the GOP state, the, the GOP leader, you know, said this to uh, the St. Louis Post Dispatch that he only wants to change the bounds of this district because of his plans to, to primary Cory Bush. Yeah, at least they're at least they're being open about it. <laughs> um, quickly, what what about Ilhan Omar? She's got a couple challengers actually, but. Who do you think? Who's the most serious, and and who who are they? So uh, a former a former city council member named Don Samuels, um, who uh, you know him and his wife started this project called the Northside Achievement Zone. They're they're very active in the community um, in uh, in Minneapolis. He launched his uh, campaign a few weeks ago. Uh, it's being managed by the person who managed Jacob Fry's campaign last year, a former state house rep, uh, DFL, uh, Democratic Farmer Labor Party activist. Um, he has not put out any policy platforms um, or you know, elaborated on his position on most issues outside of where he stands in relation to Ilhan Omar. Um, you know, has hit her for voting against Biden's infrastructure bill, um, and you know, positioned him, you know, to the right of her. His campaign is the theme is about public safety, and so um, we can expect him to be talking a lot about policing and some of the debates that have been going on in Minneapolis. He also was him and his wife were sort of the face of the campaign against uh, the ballot initiative mm-hmm. last year in Minneapolis to replace the police department uh, with a Department of Public Safety. Um, you know, which they were on the same side as the mayor, the police, and, and some you know pretty conservative uh, politicians in in Minneapolis. Um, he is kind of a a strange character. Like the stories about him in Minneapolis are, you know, he wrote an op-ed in the Star Tribune about pulling someone over for urinating in public and then getting his phone stolen. Uh, he's he's kind of known, you know, he's someone that people don't necessarily take seriously in the circles, but it seems like more of a situation where the Democrats who have wanted to take Ilhan out of office see him as a, a useful vessel uh, for their aims, um, particularly with his positioning uh, after the protests in 2020, before which his career was pretty quiet. Well, I'm sure he'll be quite well funded, no doubt about that. But Akela, thanks, thanks so much as always. Yeah, thank you. Talk to you later.